<clears throat> well, thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship today. If you have been with us at all this year in 2023, <clears throat> you know that our theme for this year is why does it matter? And we have been exploring really kind of the comprehensive answer to that question for this entire year. And we have, during the various liturgical emphases of our year, we've looked at different facets of that question. So we began the year asking the question, why does anything matter? And then, as you know, we just finished the Easter season, and our topic for Easter was your story. Why does it matter? And so today we're going to begin a new conversation, a new aspect of this question, and we're going to address the topic of family. Why does it matter? And what we'll do over the next few weeks is we're going to explore the various dynamics of family life in America today. Because family life has changed quite dramatically. And this is not really a, um, a how-to series. That's not what this is designed for. I really want us just to explore these different dynamics and look at what the Bible has to say to guide us as we think about being in families here in the 21st century. So with that said, I really want to just begin the conversation this morning. That's really all we're going to do is just get started. We have lots of topics to explore over these next few weeks. So I've titled the message this morning, The Family is God's Idea. And the text is found in the first book of the Bible. I want us to go all the way back to the very first family. So if you have your copy of the Old Testament, look with me at Genesis page 2, just the second page of our Bibles. Genesis 1 is the story of creation from a macro perspective. It is God creating everything that is. Genesis 2 is more of the micro perspective. It is what's happening in the dynamic of this first original human family, Adam and Eve. So look with me at this text, and we'll start in Genesis 2, verse 18. And here we will encounter the first not good in the Bible. Because so far, everything has been good. But we come here to verse 18, and let's look at this text. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib which he had taken from out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. 
Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, this is the first couple, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. They're in perfect harmony with God. They're in perfect harmony with creation. They're in perfect harmony with their purpose. They're in perfect harmony with each other. Now, how long did that last? Well, we know the very next page, things fall apart. Here's what I'd like to believe, though. I would like to believe that this actually lasted for a while. I'd like to believe that Adam and Eve lived in the innocence of this era for a season. But then we know that ultimately things will fall apart and this family will face many different difficult challenges. But with that said, I want to use this original family as a springboard for our conversation this morning. And I'll begin our discussion on family with this statement. God designed human beings to be birthed and reared in a family. How many of y'all have ever had contact with a family? <clears throat> Most of you. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting, isn't it? We, we're all born into some kind of family context. Well, that's God's original design. It's God's original idea. Human beings created by God begin their life on this earth in the family setting. The Garden of Eden, this very first couple, they are the first original family. They're commanded by God, be fruitful, multiply, and then exercise dominion over the earth. Well, in this series, here's what I want us to do. We're going to explore the various dynamics of family life. We're going to look at biblical principles that I believe can help us address whatever family situation we find ourselves in. Our church is full of diverse family settings, just like our culture is. And as I said, this is not really going to be a how-to series. This is going to be more of an acceptance of where we are and see how God might guide us on into the future. Now, along the way, we're going to invite some fictional families to help us. And it's interesting to me how influential fictional families are in shaping our understanding of family life in America. For example, uh, let's see if you know some of these fictional families. We may not use all of them in our journey, but just because of their influence on us. Do you recognize this one? Here's the story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls, Brady Bunch. They're creepy and they're kooky and mysterious and spooky. <clears throat> Adam's family. Um, how about this one? Y'all got it? You want me to keep going? <clears throat> um, that was actually recording. I was just lip syncing up here, y'all. You know better than that. Um, Andy Griffith, single dad. How about come and listen to my story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer. Everybody's all right. See if you know this one. Now, this is a story about how my life got flipped, turned upside down, and I'd like to take a minute just... Okay, yeah, I can't do that one quite as well. 
that would be the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Okay. So, here's what's interesting. Um, when I was much younger, in the 1970s, do you know one of the most recognized taglines in pop culture? You know what it was? Good night, John Boy. Y'all remember that? The Waltons. You know, the Waltons, interesting family, was a fictional family in a fictional town called Walton's Mountain in rural Virginia. And they lived during the Depression when the show first started, made their way through World War II. Started in September of 1972. And basically the story is about John Boy. He's grown now and he narrates what happened in his life when he was a younger boy. He has six siblings. He lives with his parents and his paternal grandparents there on Walton's Mountain. So this morning, just as we get started to think about family, we have a clip we want to show you. It may have been a while since you've seen the Waltons. So some of you may have never seen the Waltons. So let me just show you a clip from one of the shows known as the Waltons this morning. <clears throat> Whenever I look back to those days when I was growing up in the Great Depression, I'm always convinced that I came from a remarkable family. It wasn't that my brothers and sisters and I were sheltered from the realities of those difficult times. It was simply that our mother and father had a way of making more of what we had and less of what we didn't have. Have more, Grandpa. No, thank you, daughter. I had my full share. I'll have more, Mama. You just wait till the others get theirs. There won't be any left. I'll make plenty for everybody. Hot biscuits. You can smell them baking all the way out to the barn. The honey's almost gone. One of you men will have to go out and look for a bee tree. Bee tree? I spotted an old oak tree just buzzing with bees up in John Boy's meadow the other day. Why do you call it John Boy's meadow, Grandpa? He's never going to farm it. Be too busy being a rider. I named it John Boy's meadow the day he was born. That's why. Mm. Besides, riders can be farmers, too, can't they? You are going up that beehive, Grandpa? <laughs> I like getting an early start smoking out them bees. You're too old to go traipsing around that mountain. <laughs> Ever since we got married, my old sweetheart just can't stand me out of her sight. <laughs> think you're doing, you old fool. <laughs> so why would I show y'all a clip from the Waltons? <clears throat> well, I want you to think about what you just saw. Um, you saw a multi-generational family seated around a dinner table, enjoying each other's life and company. You, you saw people who appreciated one another. They were respectful. They were kind to each other. And they just lived in a normal life setting. And in some ways, the Waltons captured, at least at that time in America, what many people viewed as the ideal family. Multi-generational, hard-working, lived off the land, respected each other. They were together. They shared their meals together. They shared their life together. They were sweet to each other. They enjoyed humor with one another. They just cared for each other. So let me ask y'all, do y'all think times have changed? How many families in America even sit at a dinner table? 
much less in a multi-generational setting anymore. These people on this show, their whole lives basically revolved around those core relationships. I wonder how true that is anymore in my culture. Here's what I would tell you. I've just been doing a little research on the family. I think you already know this, but I just want to share some of the research with you today. The landscape of the American family has changed dramatically in a generation. If you look across America today, according to the latest U.S. Census um, data, we have 332 million Americans today. Those Americans live in 131.2 million households. So on average, there's about 3.13 people in each house, okay? Now I want you to think about those households. If you were to look at our nation in 1960, of all of those families, 85% of the households in 1960 were family households. That means the people that lived in those homes lived with family members. 15% of the households in America in 1960 were what were called non-family households. The overwhelming majority of them, 13% were single adults, okay? So in 1960, 85% of every household in America was actually a family household. Today, only 65% of the households in America are family households. 35% of the households in America are non-family households. That means that over a third of Americans live in homes without family members present. It's a very different home setting. Even more striking, in 1960, couples married with children comprised 44% of all households in America. So the nuclear family, a husband, a wife, and at least one child, 44% of American households. Today, that's only 19%. So I want you to think about that for a second. Only 19% of the households in America are actually couples with at least one child compared to 45% in 1960. The married couples without children is about the same, about 30% or so. So in 1960, 75% of the households in America were married couples, almost half of them with children. Today, Less than 50% of the households in America are married couples, and only 19% of them comprise what you and I would normally think of as a nuclear family. Well, there are all kinds of factors that contribute to all of this. As a matter of fact, according to the research, what we've discovered is, is that Americans are marrying at a later age than at any other time in history. The average man in America, his first marriage doesn't occur until after his 29th birthday. The average woman in America does not get married until after her 27th birthday. That's the highest in the history of our country. Also, baby boomers now are beginning to dominate the adult population in America. When you look at American adults, Heads of households, 
22% of all adults leading households are 65 years or older. That's the highest number ever. If, if you refer to people 65 and older as senior adults, then that's the largest segment of the adult population in American history heading households today. If you look at young adults 25 years and younger, it's fascinating what's occurred to them. Today, adults that are 25 years old or younger who live outside of the home in which they were reared, historically they have been married. But today, 61% of them are single adults. Once again, think about 25 and under, the overwhelming majority of them have never been married because they wait till later to get married now. We also are having children, having fewer children than any other time in the history of our country, percentage-wise. There are less children. Consequently, the baby boomers, so some of the kids that might have been born in the 70s and 80s that have emerged into adulthood, there are fewer of them. So the older adults now outnumber them. Does that make sense? A lot of factors for that. One of the factors is since 1972, we've had several million unborn babies aborted in America. And so instead of those children becoming adults and populating our nation, they never actually made it. Young adults, ages 18 to 34, in the last 10 years, they've created new households less frequently than in any other time in American history. Young adults 18 to 34 have created new households less frequently than any other time in American history. In other words, 18 to 34-year-olds in America are living at home with their parents in record numbers. Unprecedented in American history. A lot of factors. We think pandemic is one of them. Um, student debt, economy, um, high housing costs. I mean, there are all kinds of factors that people are, are evaluating. But the, but the thing that's striking is the, the landscape has just completely changed. Biggest change to go from almost 45% of every American household to be led by mom and dad with a child down to 19% in our country. And so there are a lot of ways to look at this data. What I would say to you is as, as a leader of a, of a church in the 21st century right now, it definitely has an impact on how we have to think about providing ministry, who our population is we're trying to reach, what are the needs in today's American family. And so it's a lot of things to digest that we're all still working through trying to decide how to respond. So here's what I'd like to do. As I said, I just want to introduce our conversation this morning. We, we won't have time to get very far in it, but at least what I'd like to do is just start the conversation with you, knowing this is going to be continued over the course of the next few weeks, okay? So here's where I want us to start when it comes to the family. I just want to give you what I think are some core truths about any family, regardless of the setting. I would begin by saying deep and significant partnerships are forged within the family setting that create lasting influences in our lives. Well, one of the reasons that you as an adult, those of you that are in the room that are adults, one of the reasons that you relate to other people the way you do is because of what you learned in the home in which you were reared. 
One of the ways you engage in relationships has been profoundly influenced by how you engage in relationships in your home of origin. Those of you that are younger, you're just now learning how to engage in those relationships. The home is to be a place where deep connections occur, where deep partnerships begin to emerge, and you learn how to do that as a human. Life begins in the womb, but it is shaped by the home and people. You and me, we make our homes what they are. And so, you think about that with me. Here's the very first couple, Adam and Eve. And when I look at this story, in some ways it feels very remote to our story, but in other ways, I think we can connect to it. Because there are some core principles in this very first family that I think are important. Things like partnership, unity, intimacy. Think about what, how this story is told. Adam and Eve. Eve was created from Adam's side. There's a powerful picture there of partnership. Men and women in marital relationships are to walk side by side in deep partnership. There's profound unity. There's intimacy displayed in this story. And so as we then, married couples, begin to have children, we take those same principles and we communicate them somehow to our families. We help them to understand what it means to open up your life and, and live in an intimate way with someone and trust other people. We help them to understand how to forge partnerships, how to make deep connections. And so connectivity, partnership, growth as human beings, all that happens in a family. Now how does it look in a family? How, how do we make it work? Well, I would just tell you some things I've noticed as I've just watched families now for about 40 years and lived in one myself. Healthy families, people that are creating an atmosphere that facilitates health. I've just noticed things that I believe communicate the desire to develop these partnerships. For example, families that are healthy, they actually listen to each other. They make eye contact. Every person in the family is seen. Families that are healthy, they know how to value one another. And they communicate that value in very meaningful and real ways. Healthy families create spaces for conversation where people in the family can talk and communicate and share in a way that's indigenous to them. Healthy families learn how to form bonds within the family setting. Obviously, they love each other. But the greatest gift that you can give anybody in your family, in my opinion, hands down, is acceptance. Every single child born on this planet deserves to be accepted by their families. And so you give that gift of acceptance to your siblings, to your parents, to your children, because acceptance is a powerful gift. Love without acceptance can be incredibly damaging. Acceptance is profound. It communicates something on a deep level with another person. And we accept each other in our families. We learn how to give and take in a family. We learn the real power of forgiveness in a family. 
Because you learn what it's like to be hurt in a family. And you learn what it's like to say I'm sorry. And to grace each other. And forgive each other. And to always come back together as a family. Because families are going to face tension and stress always. It's just the way it is. We're human beings. And when we do, we're separated for maybe a season. But we always come back together. But not all families do that. Some families, they deal with the challenges and the difficulties and the disagreements and they never make amends and they never grace each other and they never really forgive each other. And so instead of coming back together, a lot of families just do this and then some families do this and then some families do this and some families do this. Are y'all still with me? And guess what? Some families get like this and then guess what they do? They just go their separate ways. Sometimes families come to see me. You know when they usually come to see me? When they're like this. And I always ask them, why didn't you come when you were like this? But now you're so tired, you're so hurt, it's so broken, and your opinion is easier just to go your separate ways. Happens all the time. Brokenness in families. Families are a place where we learn how to recover. We teach our children. We teach them how to forgive by showing them how to forgive. We teach them about grace by giving them grace. And we challenge them to live that out in our homes. Healthy families value individuality. You know, every child is different. But we learn about interdependence, learning how to live life together. We learn about expression, acknowledging maturity, allowing people to change and grow within a family because we all go through seasons of life and we don't hold our family members captive to any one season. That's what partnership to me is all about. It's about developing these deep bonds of connectivity and we learn that at home so that we then can live that out as responsible, healthy, wholesome adults in a world that desperately needs all of that. I'd say secondly about families. Families serve as the primary source of provision for human beings. Pick an arena. Physical, social, emotional, spiritual development, all of that. Families have to provide for each other's needs. It's where, you, it's where you grow. It's where you're nurtured in every respect. Think about how you care for children. Some of you parents, you remember when you brought that baby home from the hospital the first time? Y'all remember it? Remember what it was like? They're so helpless, aren't they? We've got a little grandson right now. He can't do anything. It's pitiful. <clears throat> He's just a few months old. He can't feed himself. He can't put up his toys. He doesn't know how to get dressed. He can't tell time. You can't reason with him. But I'm gonna tell you right now, you better not mess with him or you gotta deal with me. That's my grandson. I'm his poppy. And I think I'm his favorite. <laughs> think. I said, him, him. I said, he's my grandson right now. I'm his favorite. And, oh, you're his favorite. Okay, Ada thinks she's his favorite. But you know what? Do you think I mind when Gideon is at my house feeding him, cleaning up after him, caring for him? You think I mind? No, I don't. You know why? Because he's ours. And we love him. And we don't expect that out of him because we're there to provide for him. That's what families do. You provide for the needs of the people in your family. You care for them physically. But before long, the little Gideon, just like the rest of our kids, our grandkids, they grow, and we start teaching them about emotional maturity, 
teaching them how to engage in social relationships. All that is important. Provision takes place at the family level. And then we're Christians. And so as Christians, we pay attention to the spiritual development of our children. You see, healthy Christian families, a Christian home, it, it, I, I could spend a lot of time talking with you today what I believe about a Christian home, but here's what I'd say in a nutshell. A Christian home is where people reflect and communicate truths about eternity. They give reflection on eternal things. They value eternal things. Christians have a different view than non-Christians because we view things from an eternal perspective and we reflect on that eternity in our homes and we engage the people in our homes on that level from an eternal perspective. We give attention to it and it creates an environment where our children can grow spiritually and we model that for them. We teach them by what we say and what we do but more importantly, we teach them by showing them how we live and how valuable reflecting on things eternal are. You see, I live in a culture that no longer really believes that God's involved. That's the culture I live in. They believe in God, and they'll give God some credit, but most of the people in my world, they don't really believe God's actually involved in anything, and so they live their whole lives that way. Well, you see, I actually believe God's involved. I have a transcendent view. I believe that God is an eternal being who's incredibly involved in this world and in my life. And so I look for his wisdom and his leadership to guide me. I, I expect to meet him. So when I come to church, I don't just come to church to see you. I love to see you. But I'm here in God's presence. I'm expecting to hear a word from God when I come because I believe in him. And so in our homes, we nurture our children spiritually. And finally, one other thing I'd say this morning, just as we get started, families provide protection for human beings in every stage of life. Do you know what anthropologists tell us about human beings? That we have basic needs, food, water, and shelter. Every culture we know of, food, water, and shelter. In other words, human beings have to have something to drink, something to eat, and they have to have a place. Well, our families are the shelter, and we're supposed to protect our families. And so let me tell you all what I think about that. What that means is predators are not welcome in our homes. Period. If someone is a predator... Praying on our family, they're not welcome in our homes. We don't let them in. You know why? Because we're going to, those of us who are in charge, we've been given the job of fiercely protecting our family. And if I view you as a threat and you're standing at my threshold, you ain't getting in. You know, it's hard to do nowadays though. You know, in the Old Testament, do you know that child sacrifice was an abomination to God? You know that, right? You remember when the children of Israel went into the land of Canaan, God told them, do not participate in that idol worship because there were people in Canaan who practiced 
child sacrifice. It's an abomination to God when you read the Old Testament. I'm here to tell y'all in 2023, it's still an abomination to God. We don't sacrifice our children. That means if we perceive a threat, we protect. And the threats nowadays, they come in different forms. They don't show up knocking at your door. Now they come through media, digital technology, and they invade the minds and the thoughts and the heartbeat of our kids. And parents who don't monitor that, what you're basically doing is you're opening the front door of your house and you're allowing all kind of predators. You would never do that if you saw a perceived threat standing on, on the front porch. You would never let that into your home. And yet some parents allow all of that to come into their homes without taking any responsibility. And it's basically akin to child sacrifice in my opinion. So I would say to us as parents, as grandparents, we have to stand guard because a part of our responsibility is to protect our families. And it's hard to do, particularly facing the onslaught of the world in which we live today. Our families are threatened by it. And so for us as Christians, I would tell you, part of our responsibility is provide for our families, absolutely. Help our families develop healthy partnerships, yes. But the safest place in this country should be our homes. It should be a shelter, a refuge. A place of blessing to where we can go and know that we're going to be protected as best we can. And so as we begin this journey, y'all, this conversation, I just want to start by telling you, I believe the family is God's idea. And I want to say to me and you, let's join him in his good work. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, first of all, we just want to thank you for the family. Well, as I said it today, we know it. Family comes in all shapes and sizes with all kinds of challenges and tensions and difficulties and yet all kinds of blessings. And I want to thank you for our families. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that we know that the family is your idea. It's important to you. And so today, I just come before you, Lord, on behalf of our families here at our church, in our community. And I just pray that you would give us wisdom, those of us who are leaders in our families, those of us who have responsibility, that you give us wisdom to know how to best lead our families, to love and accept, create spaces for growth and maturity, individuality, creativity, and also, Lord, to put up the guardrails as we need to to help protect our families and do it in a way that honors you and serves the interests of your kingdom. So I pray that as we make our way through these conversations, looking at all different types of family expressions, that we'll sense your presence, your wisdom, your discernment, your direction, and that, Lord, our families would, would respond and seek to be the families that you've called us all to be. May it be so. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.